Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Joshua Shea, and the subject of our conversation is the addiction that no one is talking about, porn addiction. In 2010, Joshua seemingly had it all, a loving wife, two children, and a supportive extended family. After nearly 15 years working his way up the journalism ladder, he launched a lifestyle magazine in his hometown, and within a year, he was one of the founders of Central Maine's largest film festival and had won a seat on the city council in Auburn. Accolades including receiving the key to the city and being called one of the next 10 people shaping Maine's economy by a state newspaper followed. However, while the public got one picture of Shea, behind closed doors, his long-time mental health and addiction issues were festering. A workaholic by nature, he ignored red flags surrounding his long-existing pornography and alcohol problems and found it easier to lose himself in a bottle of tequila and adult websites. Shay's relationships with his family, his colleagues, and his friends began to grow distant, and his business ventures began to collapse. Life as he knew it came screeching to a halt when he was arrested on a charge of underage pornography possession in 2014. Shay was convicted and served six months in jail in early 2016, and following his arrest, he sought help and treatment through intense one-on-one therapy, group therapy, and at inpatient rehab facilities. In this conversation, we explore the profound impact both pornography and alcoholism had on Joshua's life and how something which is viewed as relatively commonplace nowadays, pornography, has the potential to turn into something incredibly damaging to your relationships, to your health, and ultimately to your brain if left unchecked. This is by far the most candid conversation I've had about a subject that can be a little sensitive, and the perspectives and insights that are shared in it will surprise you. I'm hugely grateful to Joshua for sharing his story on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Good morning slash evening, Joshua. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, it's so evening. Yeah, it's evening for me, I guess. So I, I always feel like I, I need to be polite to the person on the other end. So good morning to you. And I guess I'm technically talking to you from the past. Yes, I suppose indeed. So, so just before we started recording, we, we delved a little bit into your latest book. Could you give us the title of said book and then give us a, a brief overview of it? Yeah, uh, it's my second book. It's called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict, Answer Your Questions. I am the role of the former addict in it. Uh, My good friend, Tony Overbay, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist out of California, is the expert. He's seen uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of couples in marriage counseling, many of whom have dealt with pornography uh, and or sex addiction. Uh, I myself was a pornography addict for nearly two decades. I've got six years of sobriety behind me. Um, and I came up with the idea for the book and pitched it 
too, Tony, uh, because when I first uh, came out as an addict, there was very little as far as resources went for addicts themselves. So I ended up writing a book, my memoir, essentially, uh, so other people could see it and see that, you know, the stereotype of a 19-year-old guy living in his mom's basement who's never kissed a girl in real life is is not exactly correct when it comes to who a porn addict actually is. There is no uh, actual true uh, stereotype because like all addictions, it can hit anybody. Um, what I realized after that book came out, I expected to get a whole bunch of uh, emails and messages from people who were addicts, and I did get those, but about half the feedback I got was from partners of porn addicts. Uh, it was from wives, it was from girlfriends, I even got stuff from you know mothers and fathers asking, you know, what do I do? I know that my husband, my boyfriend, my son has an addiction. Um, what role can I play? Is, is this my fault? Did I, did I help create this? How do I pull this back? And I realized as much as there was no resources for myself, there was no resources for anybody else uh, who was dealing with this, uh, you know, one degree apart uh, as, as a loved one. So uh, I met Tony uh, doing a podcast promoting my first book and uh, he and I hit it off and stayed in touch. And he lamented to me as my personal therapist has lamented to me that they'll sit across from an addict and an addict when they get frustrated will inevitably say well you don't know how this really feels you've never really done this you've never really been addicted and uh they can't really say anything in response because they haven't been addicted uh, and then i was getting a lot of people who were asking me real you know borderline medical advice about what to do about their addictions. And while I can tell you my story, I can tell you what worked for me. I don't want to be telling you, well, you should be trying this medication and you should, you know, this is the route to you getting better uh, just because it worked for me. I'm not qualified to give you that uh that opinion, but I do know what it's like to be an addict, and I do know that I can connect with people who are, you know, wanting to get into recovery or wanting to talk about their addiction for the first time. So I pitched to Tony, why don't we take the 60, 65 most commonly asked questions from the wives or girlfriends um, of these, there are a lot of online forums and support groups where a lot of women try to help each other. And there are some books out there from women who have gone through this with their partner, but there's very little for a partner from the point of view of here, hi, I'm an addict. I got better. Here's my story. Or hi, I'm a professional who has helped a lot of couples. Here's what happens. And I said, you know, if we kind of do a mashup sort of thing, uh, we can provide a perspective that isn't out there. And it came out now as we're recording this about three and a half months ago. And it, it, it's hit a wall with this COVID thing because there were no libraries open and Amazon's taking a, you know, a month to get at people anything. So I hope it'll bounce back afterwards. But we did great sales early on here, got a lot of interest, you know, all uh, wonderful reviews. And it's helping people because, uh, you know, we are letting these partners know uh, really what addiction is, how it is an illness, how they are not to be blamed for the illness, how they didn't cause the illness, even if the person who is the addict is still gaslighting them, still blaming them, or still trying to use excuses that put them into the spotlight of the cause of the problem. That's not the way that it really is. And we also uh, stress that, uh, you know, just take your time 
going through this process. Uh, we don't urge people to leave. We don't urge people to stay. We urge people to just take a deep breath and try to be somewhat analytical in looking at their relationship and figuring out what the, uh, what the best steps to take forward are. Mm, I mean, relative to other addictions, I can imagine this being from a psychological perspective, um, somewhat more difficult to process for the partner owing to the fact that with heroin or drugs or alcohol or whatever, there's a an extraneous substance which is being taken in, which is causing the addiction. That's That's what the issue is. Whereas if it's with someone else involved as well, that begs the question is, well, why, why do they need it? Why does that desire come from? Exactly. And, you know, I, I became a porn addict when I was 12 years old. And I don't think it ever had a whole lot to do with the naked people on the page or on the screen. I don't think it had a whole lot to do with the sex act. I don't think it had to do with nudity. It just, for whatever reason, that's what hit my pleasure sensors. Um, I was also an alcoholic. And, and that... Uh, scratch those same itches for me in the exact same way. I knew I was an addict with both of them within 15 minutes of trying both of them when I was young. Um, and they stayed with me through life. And I tried other things. You know, I can walk into a casino and you know, win $50, lose $50, whatever. I, I, I don't have that gambling addict gene. Um, but I understand how somebody could. Um, and, you, you know, you mentioned with partners, it's very hard for a partner who is not an addict or uh, has not experienced addict behavior or understands addiction to recognize that uh, they, the addict themselves is not looking for a replacement for the sex act. They are not looking for a surrogate partner. Uh, they are using pornography because it is helping them deal with uh, trauma that has just not been dealt with. Um, Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the guru in this area and was the first to start really looking at sex addiction 15, 20 years ago, in his studies, he found that roughly 80% of men who are pornography addicts have had sexual abuse, and around 95% of men have had uh, who are porn addicts have had some kind of emotional abuse. And I fall into both of those categories myself based on uh, experiences I had with a babysitter going back to four or five years old. Uh, it's most addiction, even you know, alcoholism, 70% is about uh, unresolved trauma. Most addiction deals with unresolved trauma. It's a way of coping with it. You know, I actually, uh, uh, what's, what's it called? I repressed a lot of the memories of what happened to me when I was young. And I think that porn and alcohol helped me do that. And it got to a point where I didn't even realize they were helping me do that. And then if they could repress, you know, somehow in me, I subconsciously taught myself if I could repress those kinds of bad thoughts, those kinds of bad memories, well, these could be coping tools for me as I move forward in life. So whether I was in high school, college, starting out my, my professional life or, you know, meeting, meeting my wife and, you know, starting a family, starting my own businesses, whatever it might have been, uh, you know, in times where I had greater stress, I utilized those crutches of my addictions. When things were better, I might not abuse them as much, but they were always the go-tos for me. And it was never that, gee, I love the taste of this beer or I love the taste of this drink. It was never, oh boy, I can't, you know, wait to see this person on the screen today or I can't wait to, you know, watch, watch this sex act on a screen today. It was something that helped me cope through, cope with my life and get through the day like nothing else really could. 
So some like almost like um, self-soothing. Is it you, oh, a, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And I think that especially when you look at the, the porn addiction, because pornography involves the sex act, because it involves naked people, because it involves stuff we don't really talk about in, you know, open society, you do get that sense of secrecy or sense of shame worse than other addictions. So, you know, I... Even when I faced my addictions, I thought at first I only had the alcohol addiction. I was in a uh, inpatient rehab for 10 weeks, and it was about six, seven weeks in that my caseworker had me uh, meet with a uh, certified sex addiction therapist off campus, and we started to unpack and, and dig into the porn addiction side of things, and I realized the porn addiction wasn't real, but it predated the alcoholism. It had its own separate, you know, origin story and set of issues around it. Uh, I don't know that I ever really even heard of porn addiction at that point. So I think a lot of people, you know, laugh and think it's not real, uh, but but it absolutely is real. And it probably in the long term did far more damage to my life uh, and my relationships with people than the alcoholism ever did. I make a joke to people that because I also went off to uh, uh, rehab for porn and sex addiction about a year later, you know, when I went off to alcohol uh, rehab, I was patted on the back. People would shake my hand and say, you're a hero going to battle this, you know, horrible thing. And then you tell people a year later, well, I'm going to rehab for sex addiction and porn addiction. And, you know, they don't want to shake your hand. They want to find the hand sanitizer because, oh, porn, gross. Even though statistics suggest that, you know, you men under 30, 80% are looking at pornography monthly. You know, men under 50, 65% are looking at pornography monthly. Um, People look at porn, but people are not ready to talk about it. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I write these books and I'm out there sharing my story. It is embarrassing, uh, you know, talking about this. I, I get more comfortable with it. But, you know, if we can start talking about this more openly, we can start dealing with it as a society. Uh, the scariest statistic that I've been quoting for well over a year now comes from a study that says uh, 32% of men under between the ages of 18 and 30 have self-reported uh, that they either believe they have a pornography addiction or they know that they have an issue of looking at pornography obsessively. That's one out of three men under 30. Now, if we don't start to take care of that, either taking care of these men or taking care of the next generation, these people are going to become 40 and 50 and 60. And women are actually starting to ramp up. Uh, black men, which reported porn addiction in low numbers, are starting to ramp up. Uh, Catholics, uh, members of the LDS church, they're starting to report numbers like never before. So we're going to have a large segment of our society that's addicted to pornography far more than drugs, far more than alcohol. And if we move forward 20, 30 years, not just in America, but worldwide, what's this world going to look like when, you know, somewhere between one out of two and one out of three people are a pornography addict. That's not a healthy world. Uh, and we need to talk about this if we're going to start dealing with the problem. You know, we talked about AIDS in the 80s and we put resources behind it. Right now we're in this COVID pandemic and for the most part, I think we're doing a decent job with it. You know, we're talking about it. We're telling people what to do. You know, obviously people are still getting it, but we are being proactive with it. 
you flip that and you look at something like the opioid and opiate epidemic, we were not proactive with that. We decided that these, you know, in the, in the 80s, we decided these were scuzzy drug users who were below us. They're, they're the lower income people from the bad part of town. Uh, they're just gross people. Let's not deal with them. And what happened? Well, fast forward 30 years, and now everybody knows somebody who's had an issue with opiates or opioids. Almost every family has been touched by it, and it could have been dealt with, but we are now in a reactive phase to it. And what I'm trying to do is just scream at people that we need to be proactive with pornography, not reactive, because we're going to be staring down the gun at a sexually unhealthy society 20, 30 years from now if we don't start dealing with some of these issues now. Yeah, it's an area of conversation that is wrapped in all kinds of layers of social discomfort and embarrassment as you were saying so having that conversation broaching that conversation cannot be an easy thing to do i mean i think why do you think that it's so much of an issue now is it due to things like smartphones and just how big the <laughs> yeah exactly we yeah. Now, we now give every 11 year old kid the greatest pornography computer that's ever been invented in our lifetime. When I was when I was 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, I thought that I had stumbled upon the greatest thing in the world because I found a video store that would rent pornography to me. And I found a little corner store that would sell me beer. So when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old, after school, I would ride my bike to this store, I would buy a couple beers, I would ride my bike to the video store, I'd rent a couple videotapes, and I just felt like the king of the world riding my bike home to, to, to you know, get at my stash for the day. And now you look at pornography and what's the most a kid needs to know how to do clear browser history um and the stuff and the stuff that they can see is absolutely ridiculous you know it, it you know something like you know i, I don't want to get crude here but something like you know uh, a lesbian scene might be considered exotic and extreme back when I was renting videos. And, you know, now any 12-year-old who can spell horse and Eskimo can see some really, you know, magnificently disturbing stuff <laughs> online. Uh, because if it's out there, if, if it's out there, they can find it. And, uh, you know, how, I, I don't know what at you know, 10, 11 years old, that I could have been uh, able to deal with this. And we're sexualizing kids younger and younger and younger. And that moment that you're sexualized, you don't go back from that. Uh, and sexualizing children younger has been proven in, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of studies to not be a healthy thing, you know, as, as a child is younger. They grew up with trauma. They grew up with questions. They grew up with unhealthy sexuality and unhealthy sexual practices. So, you know, we've, we're, uh, we're part of a generation that, you know, knew the world before the internet. Uh, that's never going to exist again. And I think that we don't realize that we have to equip these younger people uh, with the correct tools and warn them about the internet. You know, hey, I don't care if you smoke, but I know that you know smoking isn't good for you. I know you were taught smoking wasn't good for you. I don't care if you look at pornography, but you should also be told 
that pornography has the potential to not be good for you, just like alcohol, just like drugs, just like gambling. If you don't know how to, if you can't use these things in a healthy way, uh, if you can't use these things in a recreational way, it can get out of hand. And like I said, I can gamble in a very safe recreational way, uh, but I can't look at porn and I can't drink that way. I was never taught about the porn. I was taught about the drinking. I clearly didn't listen. Um, and I went off and, and did what I did. Um, but I'm also guessing that that education is what kept me away from heroin. That education kept me away from overeating. Uh, that education kept me away from a lot of things that could have been harmful for me. And, you know, simply letting, you know, it, it sucks as a parent to think that you have to talk to your kids about pornography, uh, but it doesn't have to be part of some big sex talk. I think talking to kids about pornography is more similar to the speech about telling them to stay off drugs uh, than it is anything to do with, with, uh, with a sex talk or a birds and bees talk. Mm. So, I mean, there's this... I've read I've read around this subject matter before, and there's this the notion that um, owing to the the way that your brain works in terms of the dopamine loops that you get stuck in, whereby you end up looking at one thing, and then over time your desires become progressively more extreme. Not necessarily because you're desiring more extreme things, but because the stimulus that you were previously exposing yourself to is not having the same impact. Right. And I think anybody can understand that uh, from the terms of drinking, yeah. where, you know, when you were young, that one beer you had, you know, one pint did you in. And then after you drank a little more, you needed three pints to feel the same way. And then it got to the point where you could have as many pints as you wanted and you still weren't getting that buzz that you liked. So you moved on to wine or you learned that shots were uh, a lot more effective at packing a punch. And it's the same as, you know, a gambling addict who, you know, first was betting $1,000 a hand on blackjack and that gets commonplace. So you have to ratchet it up to get that same excitement, 5,000, 10,000, the same, you know, with me, pornography, it was, you know, first I had the magazines and then I had videos and then it went online. And then ultimately when I had to face my issues, uh, it was because I was going into chat rooms because I needed an interactive aspect to what I was doing. Um, I needed to, uh, a lot of my uh, issues were about control um, because when I was younger at that babysitter's house, I kind of had to cede control over to her. And so growing up, pornography and drinking were both a, a bit about control issues for me. And they allowed me to feel like I was in control. And when it got to the point that, you know, just looking at somebody on a screen in a video wasn't doing it enough for me. I went into chat rooms and I started talking with women and trying to get them to do what I wanted. And, you know, any, any breasts I saw or anything like that was completely secondary toward the control that I had over them. If I wanted to see breasts, if I wanted to masturbate, I know how the internet works. I can, I can find that all day long. I needed to go deeper and have it be able something else. And that's why, you know, I always try to remind you that addiction is not usually about the substance itself. Um, addiction is a symptom of a bigger problem, that bigger problem almost always being unresolved trauma. Mm. So with um, the way that things are today with the likes of social media and Instagram and so on and so forth, and the circling back to that progressively needing more and more spend any time scrolling through Instagram, you're invariably going to come across shots that are 
bikini-clad photos, swimming suit photos, so on and so forth. Even as a kid, even if you're not necessarily looking for these things, it could be around about anything. Is Do you think that the fact that there is so much of this apparently like harmless low-level stimulation out there do you think that that is a, a contributing factor to the fact that everyone sort of ends up on this path it's just some people end up being a little bit further down it than others it has more of an impact i think that it normalizes it and i yeah. think that it's a bit of a gateway you know they talk about i remember when, when you know i was in school it's like marijuana is a gateway drug <laughs> and people are like well that's a that's a, such a joke it's like it's not actually a joke because everybody does start there it's just not that everybody keeps going yeah. um and, and and that's not saying that you know marijuana is as bad as these other drugs clearly Putting up a photo of yourself in a bikini is not as bad as putting up a photo of yourself naked, which is not as bad as putting up a photo of yourself naked and engaging in sexual activity. Uh, I think that it's an entry point. You know, uh, we didn't have social media when I was in high school. Uh, I couldn't have imagined a world where I could see any of my classmates in their bikinis, but that's almost commonplace now um, for e every girl to have these, you know, uh, shots with the the uh, little small bikinis on and trying to look sexy. And I think that, you know, that uh, will uh, contribute to people uh, normalizing the next step, which is, you know, nudity and pornography. And, and I'm not necessarily saying that these are bad things because I think that there is, and one thing that I you know, always try to remind people is, you know, sexuality is a very good thing. Healthy sexuality is a wonderful thing. You know, uh, sexuality between two consenting people can mean very different things to very different people. And I don't try to tell people what's, what's healthy or not, but um, they can also lead to certain addictions. Uh, you know, that, that person who likes looking at those, uh, you know, bikini photos of their classmates. Well, it's only a short step to finding girls that you don't know, but who are naked. And, you know, I think that a lot of these guys in high school, you know, these, these photos uh, become commodity and they convince their girlfriends uh, to take photos of themselves and they take photos of, you know, they, you know the, the fame, you know, everybody's sending dick pics, uh, I, 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 I still don't understand that mindset. I don't know if I could have done it when I was in high school, but it's pretty commonplace and pretty normal. And the idea that you're taking pictures of your naked body and giving them to someone else as a gift when it's probably only you're not going to end up together and it's only going to be commoditized. We can't, you know, we can't teach our kids this clearly uh, or we're not doing a good job of teaching our kids this because you get so many stories of these people whose lives are absolutely wrecked because their ex-boyfriend posted all kinds of revenge porn or their dick pics got out on the internet and now, you know, caught in the hands of their grandmother. And now, you know, it's, it's, it's a big mess. And I think that, you know, we need to, uh, address, you know, pornography with kids, both from the aspect of looking at it, but also the aspect of making it because making pornography is now a huge thing. You know, uh, 
child pornography has always been a problem for decades, but it's only in the last five, six years that exponentially more child pornography is made by the children than anybody else. Mm -hmm. They're making it of themselves and trading it with each other, and they don't consider it pornography because it's not, you know, the triple X stuff that they find on the internet, but it's getting out there. And and that's, uh, we need to, before a, you know, 14 or 15-year-old kid thinks this is a good idea, you need to teach them when they're eight years old it's not a good idea to be doing that mm, I can imagine that being an incredibly difficult conversation to have with a, with potentially an eight-year-old because well but it, no it, do, it really doesn't have to be because here's the thing you, you don't let anybody take pictures of you without your bathing suit on or without your your underwear on and you don't take pictures of anybody else that way because sometimes pictures get out like that and they make people very sad and they make people very embarrassed and you wouldn't want everybody to see that would you no okay let's go see what's on tv yeah boom you're done done. because because an eight-year-old doesn't really know what pornography is you know you tell an eight-year-old don't get into a stranger's car you don't describe the brutal rape and murder that could possibly happen you just tell them not to get into a stranger's car and that's enough Mm -hmm. and if you make it age appropriate you can start at six and seven years old and as the kids get older you can tell them more you know i firmly believe that one of the biggest ways we can defeat pornography Moving forward or defeat pornography addiction is to talk to 13 and 14 year old boys about porn induced erectile dysfunction, PIED. Yeah. And I've talked with a lot of guys about this now who are 18, 19, 20 who suffer from it. Uh, I talked with a guy recently, he uh, 22 years old, absolutely beautiful girlfriend his age. He cannot maintain an erection during sex unless pornography is playing in the background. And you know, he, he can finish with her if porn is on. He can't if it's not. Mm-hmm. The place that they've actually had to get, excuse me, get to is in their apartment. They have two computers. They will actually go into two different rooms and do cyber chatting, like almost like you and I are doing now. They will do cyber chatting, and his brain kind of works to it that that's a form of pornography. And then when they're both very close and ready, they get back together and successfully finish that way. But that's a horrible way of living. And, you know, I think if we tell 13 and 14-year-old boys who aren't addicts yet, we need to, you know, these are boys who want girlfriends. They probably want to have sex with girls. They want to have girlfriends so they can have sex with them. And a lot of them start out using pornography as some kind of a surrogate. And we just need to tell them, listen, here's what happens to some guys who use too much pornography. When they finally do get a girlfriend, they cannot perform sexually. And, you know, I know at 13 or 14, I think that would have scared the hell out of me and might have kept me uh, a little more on the straight and narrow. I can't say for sure, but these kids need to be told that this is a potential side effect that is just around the corner for them. If they fry their dopamine receptors and the oxytocin and every, you know, the other uh, four pleasure chemicals in the brain, if they fry those receptors to the point that they need absolutely turbo doses to have any feeling, you know, they're not going to have a good normal life. And mm-hmm. they need to be told this. They don't need to be told this at seven. But at 13 or 14, they're old enough to handle this. Grading the message for your audience, I mean, ranging from what you were saying about saying, like, don't let someone take pictures of you, don't take pictures of other people, all the way through to, okay, now that you're 
old enough effectively to understand right. the reasoning behind it. This is why that you don't do it. Right. And I think it, it's that kind of self-perpetuating rabbit hole almost whereby if you're 13, 14 and you are not familiar with the consequences of the fact is oh, I'm feeling a bit down or like maybe this girl doesn't like me or something like that. I need to feel good about myself while I have a phone. Very, very easy to get hold of the porn. Then over time, that self-soothing ends up being the thing that is doing the damage, that ne- that need to make yourself feel good when something is challenging or right. stressful, that ends right. up being the thing. And, and, and I don't know how you tell your kid, you know, only masturbate when you're horny, not when you're feeling sad. Um, that, that's, that's a conversation even I haven't had with my kids. Um, but uh, th- that, that's, really the, that's really the thing is that, you know, masturbation is normal. Looking at pornography, being curious is normal for people of that age, but they have it to such an open, available extent that it's very easily gone overboard. I mean, you know, if I, if I got home from school and I just didn't feel like riding my bike two miles to the video store, I didn't have videos that day. Um, you know, Hey, a, a couple clicks of the mouse, you know, clicks of the the phone, and I've got whatever I want here in front of me. Uh, we do need to have these kids be a little bit more vigilant, much like you know, we have to tell them about drugs. Here's what's going to happen if you use drugs. Um, there are some people who use drugs recreationally; they get away with it, and you know, that 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 is what it is. They're they're playing with fire doing that. And there are people who drink recreationally, and that's fine. Uh, if they can control it, you know, power to them. Uh, but here is what can possibly happen. And once you have the knowledge, you can make the decision for good or bad. Um, I don't think that we're ever going to get rid of pornography addiction. I don't think we're ever going to get rid of pornography. Um, and those aren't my battles. I just, I wish that I could go back and have been given a little bit more guidance a little bit more education along the way and i think that uh not having that guidance not having that education in today's climate with the kind of technological world that we have uh, and with a world that can self-isolate much easier than ever before um, especially like i said you know you and i are recording this during the covid issues you know how many people are sitting at home uh getting into pornography, not only getting into pornography from the viewing end, how many people, you know, how many young restaurant workers who are out of jobs are now considering going online and doing this kind of stuff? Uh, They are being targeted right now by the online porn companies. Uh, You know, we need to, at younger ages, say, hey, there is going to be kickback from this. There is potential harm in this. I want you to have the facts and I want you to make an informed decision. Might I still be talking to you here today had I been given all the facts? Sure, I might be, but I probably wouldn't be. And I'm, I believe that while this 18 to 30-year-old generation, I don't want to say they're a lost generation, I think that they're a warning to future generations that we need to handle this in a much different way for the kids who are coming up these days. Mm, for sure. And like, circling back to what you were saying about restaurant workers and that, I saw um, an interview with, funny enough, a, a cam girl. Um, I think it was on Vice or something like that, talking about the like the business impact of the COVID crisis on her performances or something like that. Is just the demand at the moment is just so 
unbelievably high to the extent that it's becoming problematic but problematic for her from a like i know that i cannot spend the entire day doing this from a personal perspective but that's what an awful lot of people are doing in that you if you're spending an extra eight hours or so at home and you're maybe young or you're single or you've you're already on that path you've effectively been given carte blanche by society because you see stories about for example, Pornhub, when Italy was locked down, Northern Italy was locked down, they were offering free premium men- membership for seven days to anyone who was in Italy. And all of a sudden you have a massive, effectively captive audience because people are not supposed to be going outside at the moment. And just, I mean, from a personal perspective, I think it would be fascinating to see what the impact has been on... Italy went Italy went up on Pornhub 40% overnight. Wow. And they extended it. It was Italy, Spain, and France were the three that they first uh, extended it to. Then they extended it worldwide. And then they and and now the seven-day thing isn't even a thing anymore. It's until further notice you have our premium access. And it has leveled off and dropped a lot. It, it peaked up to about 20% higher in the U.S., and now that's down to 10%. And I do have to say, while I'm not a fan of the material Pornhub produces or distributes, they produce better analytics and share oh, their sure. analytics yeah. better than any other organization on earth. Um and, you know, you can see how just it, it is spiking crazy. And not only that, but uh, Pornhub and several of these other sites uh, who have live cams or have aspects of that to their site, uh, they usually work on a uh, deal with the cam girl where they take half the money and the cam girl gets the other half. So if you buy your tokens or your points for $10 and uh, you spend them on the girl, you know, they get half the money and the company gets half the money. Well, these companies are now changing their uh, payouts. So a lot of the girls to attract more people are getting 75, 80% and the company's taking a smaller cut to try to bring more people into it because the demand is there. And you've also got these pop-ups where there are now these like cam girl light sites. And I, you know, I won't mention the names of them here, but basically they're almost like a, a Facebook or a LinkedIn um, for pornography where you can spend $10 in the month and you can go to my page and I have some pictures there and I have some videos there that I've made, but we don't do live camming, you know, to each other. I can go on to these other things, Facebook Live or, or uh, Instagram Live or Periscope, and I can try to get people, I can drum up business that way, but I can do it with my clothes on. And therefore, I'm not a real cam girl. But nonetheless, at the end, you know, you still are paying $10. You know, I'm still creating the pornography. You're still paying $10. And, you know, uh, naked pictures and videos of me are out there, but the stigma of cam girl is not there anymore. And what's funny is that I was just reading a story, I think it was New York Times or New York Post, about how these types of sites in the last month are being flooded with people because uh, y- younger women think that they can make some quick money on it, but they're actually starting to saturate the uh marketplace so all of these women who have for the first time 
ever taken some, you know, uh, naked photos of themselves and put them out there, they are not getting the kind of people following like they thought they would. They thought they'd have hundreds of people, you know, downloading their photos. Now they're only getting six or seven, but they are actually having, you know, uh, seller's regret for the fact that they did it at all because, gee, it turns out I'm not making hundreds of dollars a week on this. You know, I'm making $30 a week and suddenly, you know, my my videos of me masturbating are turning up on all of these websites where people can see them for free now. So what am I getting out of this? I'm not getting anything out of it. Whoops, I shouldn't have done this. Well, whoops, I shouldn't have done this. Let's see what happens to that video as you move forward in life. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens with those videos, with those photos as you move forward in life. You know, I don't regret anybody trying to make a dollar or trying to, you know, feed their kids or pay their rent. Um, but these pornography companies absolutely know that's happening. And it's a great time to recruit customers and it's a great time to recruit uh, girls to be doing this. And uh, I think that they just need to be made aware of it, that this stuff stays out there forever. Even if there's a huge amount of people doing it, this stuff stays out there forever. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine the the social stigma um, and the impact that the social stigma can then subsequently have on mental health will be profound i mean before we started recording um you mentioned the term what was it was it betrayal trauma yeah mm. betrayal trauma is what the what the partners feel when it's found that their uh, partner has been engaged in this mm-hmm. and this is one of those things where in this it's funny you mentioned this within this meeting uh in the new york times talked about how many of these women are actually doing this and their partners are feeling betrayed. Uh, Their male partners are feeling betrayed because they went ahead and shared their body online, didn't ask permission or didn't ask for their feedback. And now these guys are feeling like, oh no, I've been cheated on, much like a wife or a girlfriend of a porn, porn addict feels where, you know, oh my God, this guy who I married five years ago, who I thought I knew everything about, it turns out he has a massive pornography addiction. Well, if he has a massive pornography addiction and he hid that from me, what else is he hidden from me? What don't I I know about this guy? Who who is this guy? Who is this guy I've been with for five years? If he can hide this, imagine what else he can hide. And odds are she brought up pornography at some point along the way, and he practiced gaslighting on her and made her think she was crazy. And we we talk about a lot of that in the second book where partners need to recognize that they are not the reason that anybody becomes a porn addict. The odds are they were a porn addict long before. I met my wife when I was 26. I truly believe I was a porn addict at 12 years old. So you tell me, I've got 14 years of being a porn addict, then I meet her. How much is she really going to have to you know, do with this? Absolutely nothing. And for 14 years, I've learned how to hide this from my parents. I've learned how to hide it from my friends. I've learned how to hide it from roommates, from girlfriends. You know, And it's one of those things that you're not looking for. So if you're not looking for this, uh, you're, and I've had 14 years of hiding it and practicing hiding it. I'm very good at it, you know, and, and addicts are master manipulators and they're master liars. They know how to get around it. So I was not very good at hiding my alcoholism. You know, my wife knew I had some issues with alcohol. My parents knew I had issues with alcohol. Uh, I, I would say I was a functional alcoholic at the end. Uh, but they, they knew that I, ha- I was an alcoholic. They had no idea about the porn addiction mm. because I 
was very good at hiding it. And when you're not looking for it, you don't see it. You know, it, it, you just don't see it. Um, and then to be woken up to the fact that, oh, my gosh, this person who was my partner in life. Well, again, you know, you go back. If I was a heroin addict, you know, my wife never would have, you know, asked herself, well, is, did I have anything to do with this? Or, you know, if I was gambling away the, the kids' college funds, well, is this because I'm not enough in the bedroom? No, you know, they, they know that that addiction has nothing to do with them. But because this is about sex, because this is about nudity, because this involves masturbation and orgasms and sexual behavior, it gets all twisted. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as I mentioned before, and I, you know, I really try to drive home to people, it has so little to do with the sex on the screen. I wasn't using pornography to replace intimacy or physical love uh, with, with my wife. I was using it to soothe a whole bunch of other issues that for some people is soothed with gambling, for some people is soothed with heroin, for some people is soothed with alcohol. For me, it was pornography. And the partners, you know, need to, and one of the reasons we wrote the book was to help them understand this doesn't have to do with you. And it's hard to really wrap your arms around it when you're in the middle of it, but it really has nothing to do with you. Uh, The fallout is real and your pain is real and your pain needs to be dealt with and you need to really take care of yourself and you need to get some one-on-one counseling. You probably need to get counseling as a couple. He certainly needs to get counseling as, as an addict. Um, but the origins of the addiction, it is not your fault. And we, we really try to drive that home. But that betrayal trauma, it, it's there like, like no other addiction with a partner um, when it comes to pornography and sex addiction. I can imagine the the feelings of inadequacy that would come with it must be quite profound. From a, on a more personal level, um, you mentioned that you you feel that you were an addict from twelve years old. How old were you when you realised that maybe you had a problem? Uh, you know, I think it had to do uh, when the. I never realised I had a porn addiction until I was introduced to the term probably four months after I was arrested for it. Um, I thought it was pornography addiction. And, you know, like I mentioned, I graduated from just looking on the screen to going into chat rooms. I would go into chat rooms and I would talk to women. And because of my control issues, I would try to get them to take off their clothes and do things sexually with themselves. And, it, you know, to, sh- to show you how, how much the control was, um, if they would not do that, I would still try to get them to do other things like change their clothes or move furniture around, take down things on the wall and try, I mean, anything to exhibit control. And if you come into my office, I was a magazine publisher, I was a, uh, I was a uh, local politician, I was on my city council. If you had ever walked into my office, you would have seen plaques on the wall, trophies, certificates. They weren't there so you could see how awesome I was. They were there for me to constantly remind myself how awesome I was because I had quite a uh, inferiority complex. Uh, I was, you know, this was my way of controlling the world and proving that I was good and proving that I could do something. And when my world was falling apart, when I started, you know, for a whole bunch of different reasons, failing business, relationships with family were going down. I wasn't taking uh, mental health medication that I had been on. Uh, My world was falling apart when I was, when I was in these chat rooms. And um, 
when I was successful, when my control uh, powered over everything, that was the rush. That was the dopamine. My con- I, I had my control button pushed. And one of the things I would do is I would take a screen capture at the very end of talking to somebody because it was a trophy. Much like I collected trophies to prove how awesome I was in my professional life when I was done talking to one of these women online i'd just do the you know shift f4 and there click take a take a screen capture unfortunately one of these women ended up being a teenage girl and i didn't know it at the time but on march 20th 2014 the state police showed up and said we have reason to believe that you have child pornography on your computer and i said what what are you talking about and they came in and they laid it out for me. You know, we, we know you've been doing this and we believe that you created these photos. And uh, I couldn't fight them on it because they were right. Uh, and I, you know, I, I really stress uh, in sharing my story that, you know, you cannot use addiction as an excuse. Um, no matter where my mind was at, um, and I had truly lost some sense of cause and effect and and consequences but i know that 15 and 16 year old girls look 25 and 26 and vice versa um you know you can't tell and i don't think i cared and that's something that you do have to care about if you're going to be doing that kind of Mm -hmm. stupid activity and you know when you when i did that i didn't care about the person on the other end of the computer i was just using them uh to to you know meet my control issues and meet my needs and i took that little trophy of them and in taking that trophy i actually created uh child pornography and so i ended up doing uh six months in jail for it um uh, after I did my rehabs, but it was in that first rehab where I was just thinking that I made these horrible, dumb decisions, these, you know, and, and I, I fully take ownership of it. This is, it is a heinous thing that I did. I hope that wherever this girl is out there, that she wasn't deeply scarred by it. Um, you know, it was, it was the wrong thing I did. And, and, and I served, uh, I got punished, which was, which was just, justfully so. Um, but um, ultimately, I don't think that uh, I don't think that people understand um, the consequences of their actions when they're deep into addiction. And I'm and I try to let them know ultimately that uh, you know I. I was a father of two, a husband. I owned a couple businesses, local politician. This happened to me. It can happen to them. Um, you know, I didn't even know pornography addiction was a thing. It wasn't until that uh, deep into that uh, first rehab when I talked to a certified sex addiction therapist that he he was like, you know, porn addiction is a real thing. And based on your stories, I think you've you've got trauma and you've got issues. And, you know, I, I had repressed a lot of that trauma. It didn't take too much digging to get into it, but I'd, I'd largely forgot about it. And uh, I just blame this all on alcohol, saying this was all just a dumb, dumb mistake. I was drunk because most of the time, 
if it was 2 a.m. and I was online looking at pornography, I was probably drunk because for years and years, I could go play magazine writer. I could go play journalist. I could play husband. I could play father. I couldn't just sit there by myself and be myself. That's when I had to drink. That's when I had to look at pornography. I couldn't just sit there in my own company. And that those were the addictions that wouldn't let me do that because I was not comfortable with myself. And you know, in the end, thankfully, those police officers showed up at the door because, you know, I tell you, Ben, I don't know if I could have gone on a whole lot longer in the way that I was going downhill as fast as I was going downhill. I mean, statistically, I probably should have driven my car, you know, into a telephone pole or a tree long before I got nailed for anything to do with pornography. But I was super, super, super unhealthy. And I look back and just, you know, jail sucked and and the early recovery sucked and it's hard and it's but i'm at a place now where i have better relationships with my wife and kids i'm happier i'm healthier i mean the the covid thing's making me eat a little too much um but uh uh, because my wife's an amazing baker um and she loves working on dessert and who am i to say creme brulee isn't good three three meals a day um but Ultimately, I'm in a much better, happier position than I've ever been in. And that's also a big part of the story that I try to get across in both of my books and on my website is that recovery, while it sucks, especially in the beginning, while it is hard, it can unlock a life you didn't know was possible. Despite the fact that I was, you know, I I won by a landslide in my election or, you know, I was putting out this magazine that everybody loved and I was the toast of the town everybody knew who I was. My narcissism and my ego were getting very well massaged. Uh, I was unhealthy and unhappier than I ever had been. And here I am now, you know, I, I barely leave the house even when we can leave the house. Um, but I feel better than I ever have. And, and people who are addicts, especially porn or sex addicts, which isn't talked about in society, need to get the help if they think they have an issue with it. Because if I can get to the point where I can make the kind of error of engaging a teenager in a chat room, anybody can get to that point. 99.9% of my addiction, I would have stopped and not done that. But I just hit that point where I hit the critical point of my addiction. Uh, the, you know, everything just lined up the way it lined up. And I, and I let myself get there. And, and that's my error. That's my mistake. I paid the price. I'll be paying the price forever on that. Um, but um, it can happen to anybody. And I want people listening to know that, uh, that if you think you have a problem, but you're listening to me and going, oh, I'd never get that bad. Uh, I, would, I would have said I never could have got that bad, too. And then I got that bad. Yeah, well, water rolls downhill, doesn't it? So if you're you're on that path, as it were, um, I can. It's not a mental stretch to see how these things can not necessarily spiral out of control, but it's just the way that things tend to go. If you're perpetually looking for that next stimulus, that next thing, yeah. and when everyone has access to everything all the time, all it takes is that one moment whereby. Maybe you're not deliberately looking for it, as you were saying. Maybe it just ends up happening to you. You're still in the same situation. Responsibility still lies with you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I, I 
am a little bit more spiritual than I was before, which was not very much at all. Um, but I've realized that maybe I wasn't put here on this earth to be a magazine publisher. Maybe I wasn't put on earth to help, you know, set city budgets and whatnot. Maybe I was put on this earth to warn people about uh, what pornography can do. Maybe, you know, I can go and talk to people a few at a time. And I go to libraries, I go to churches, I do shows like yours, I write my books. And while I, you know, I don't get that immediate feedback like I did when I'd write a cover story for my magazine, um, or, uh, you know, I, I, I don't get, I don't need that kind of ego uh, build anymore. Um, thankfully, this process and recovery beat it out of me. Um, and I now recognize that maybe maybe I'm here for a, a, a bigger reason maybe I'm here for a more important reason and uh, and I'm, I'm okay with that and while you know this will follow me forever um, it's okay I'm gonna try to make the best of it and I'm gonna try to make the world a better place because while I was very much a user and I was very much I thought the world was there to make me better in the past um, I think I came out a much better person on the other end of all of this. And uh, I think I'm actually a success story. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, taking a traumatic experience like that and then being able to extract the value from it and then provide that value to other people so that they can learn from the benefits of your experience. I mean, that's, again, partially what the purpose of this podcast is, to be able to have these conversations. So this sort of thing can be can be spoken about because it's... If, I mean, addiction is one of those areas that falls under the, the very broad umbrella of mental health issues. So being able to talk about something that maybe people don't consider as addictive in this context and you being willing to share your story and provide um, the value from your experiences as well is well, invaluable. And I, and I appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, it is important to drive home the point that while, you know, heroin and meth will physically do certain things to you and uh, alcohol will physically do certain things to you, that no matter what the addiction is, whether it's chemical or process, the same thing is happening in your brain with the dopamine and the oxytocin and, and all that stuff. You know, the addictive brain acts very much the same from substance to substance to behavior to behavior. And that's really what it's about is understanding that addiction is a disease. Addiction changes the neural pathways of the brain. Um, and that's what needs to be dealt with. It's not like you can just say, okay, I'm done with this. If it was that easy, there would be no addiction. Uh, and people need to develop the strength and have the strength to step forward, especially those with mental health. And like I, I mentioned, you know, I've, I was diagnosed bipolar in my early 20s. And, you know, I know that didn't do me any favors along this way because mental health and addiction are so intertwined um, that it's even more important if you have mental health issues to be looking out for addiction. Uh, because so many people who are addicts have the mental health issues. Um, you could be one of them if you're not careful. You know, I never set out to be an alcoholic. I never set out to be a porn addict. I just found two things that made me feel better. And by the time that I realized that they actually caused harm, it was so far beyond too late uh, that, you know, I just hope that somebody out there is listening and their kids won't have to go through what my kids went through and they won't have to have their professional life torn apart the way that mine was because you know i i did love my professional life even though it's gone it you know as i knew it is gone now um you know just you can't 
you can't just let these things slide. You have one life to live. You get one chance in this world uh, to make things right and to do things right. And, you know, you can be thrown off a certain track very easily. I will never again work in a magazine or newspaper environment. I will probably never own a company again. There are a lot of things that because of what I did, I have kind of, uh, you know, handcuffed myself in certain ways. I'm alive, I'm healthy, I'm better than I ever was before. I'll take that trade off 10 out of 10 days, but it still happened. And if, you know, if my story can help create a situation where somebody doesn't have to make that trade off, uh, all the better. And if my story can help the next generation and can help the parents who listen to podcasts and watch podcasts and maybe are a little bit more open to the idea of talking about sex than my generation or especially my parents' generation, then this is okay. I mean, you know, it's we can't talk about porn addiction until we talk about pornography. We can't talk about pornography until we admit that people they actually masturbate. And, you know... <laughs> Despite the fact that all of our all of our all the statistics point to this and point to this being more normal than not doing it, uh, there's so much shame attached to it, and we need to start talking about this shame. We need to start talking about pornography, pornography addiction, if we're going to have any impact. And as I think that this discussion you and I have had here shows it doesn't have to be graphic. It never has to be graphic. You don't need, you know, when I, I talk to a lot of people who are just starting to look for recovery, who, you know, I have had a lot of people come up to me after I do a presentation in a library in a church and say, I came here today because I think I have a problem. I want to talk to you more about it. I'll talk to these people. I'm the first person they've ever talked to about their problem. And I'm the first person they've ever heard talk about their problem. We need more people talking about this stuff. You know, there's, it, it's, in some ways, it's nice being in a class of one, being out there talking about my stuff. I don't compete with many people. I can get on a lot of these podcasts and, you know, these shows. But it would be so much better if we had a lot of men out there talking about their porn addiction, if we had young men talking about their porn addiction, if we had women talking about their porn addiction. Uh, we need more people talking about this so we can face this issue as a society. And not, not just in America, but worldwide. Mm, for sure. I mean, talking is never going to hurt in this regard. I think if people become, become more aware that this, this can be a very significant issue, then yeah, all power, all power to anyone who is involved. On a more personal level, um, the recovery process when you were admitted to rehab and that, what did that look like from a from a mental perspective? Um, because a lot of the time when you hear about addiction, it's similar to the the stage of grief, whereby the first thing is denial. It's like, I don't have a problem. This isn't a problem. Right. What was that recovery process like for you? Uh, well, it was it was interesting in that uh, the day after that I was arrested, I went to my lawyer for the first time. I brought my father, who was a friend of his, and I brought my wife. And the first question he says, he asks is, is this a litigation game or a sentencing game? And I say, it's a sentencing game. They've got me. I'm not even going to pretend they don't have me on this. And he's like, okay, well, do you have any drug or alcohol problems? I said, absolutely not. And my father and my wife both said, oh, no, he does. He does. He certainly does. And I was like, oh, you think I do? Yes, we think you do. We know you do. And I said, well, you know what? If, if going to rehab for 28 days and getting a certificate is going to make the judge uh, feel good about me, 
great, let's do it. And the, my lawyer stopped me right there. He says, wait, no, no, no. Um, all this is going to be over someday. You may get no jail time. You may go to prison for three years. You may not have any probation. You may have 10 years of probation. We don't know what's going to happen. But at some point, all of this is going to be over on a legal point of view. You don't want to be the same asshole that you are now because it's clear that the people who love you know that you're sick. And whether you agree or disagree, you should go try to get better and at least find out why they think you're sick. So uh, about 10 days later, I went off to rehab and it probably took me a week. I went, I went to Palm Springs, California for about a week. I sat there and listened and did my typical journalist thing where it's like, Oh, this is fascinating. And Oh, look at these people. And this is, wow, this would make a good story. And, but, and a, at about a week into it, it was just like this light bulb went on and I was like, Oh wait, they're talking about me. And I listened. It's like, I, I, I'm exactly the person they're talking about here. They're talking about alcoholics and all these behaviors they talk about that I thought I was clever in hiding it and that, you know, I used because it made me feel better, you know, in social situations and, you know, I, I was a better version of myself and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my goodness. This is exactly me. And just because, you know, I, I was raised by parents who were complete teetotalers to believe that if alcohol ever touched my lips, I would be laying in the gutter like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon with holding a bottle with two X's on it and, you know, hiccuping and, you know, alcohol touching my mouth would just render me a complete, uh, you know, homeless derelict. And it didn't do that. It didn't do that for 20 years. It actually never did that. So I, my picture of what an alcoholic was uh, had to be completely reformed. And when I was in, was in rehab, I truly learned that, you know, an alcoholic is any type of person. Uh, and an alcoholic, you know, it's not about age. It's not about wealth. It's not about education. And when I finally started coming around to the pornography and sex side of things, it was the same story. When I was in rehab, you know, and I was in that first rehab 10 weeks. I thought I'd be there 28 days, like in the movies. When I left after 10 weeks, I got it. It was a wonderful transformational experience and after coming coming back from that i spent about eight months in very uh, hardcore one-on-one -on -one therapy with with the woman who's still my therapist to this day and she and and my lawyer and i decided that it would make sense for me to go to another inpatient uh experience for the pornography i did that that was grueling and difficult and brought up so many uncomfortable truths and so many things i didn't want to remember and things that would just leave me wrecked on the floor sobbing because i had tried so hard to squish it down and not remember it and uh but but I had to go through that. And when I came out of it the other side, you know, I eventually, not long after that second rehab, I had to go and get sentenced. And I stood there before the judge. And, you know, I, I told her the irony was from the time that I was arrested to the time that I was sentenced, my full-time job was getting better, whether I was in rehab or in one-on-one -on -one therapy or I was reading, you know, me being a, a former reporter, I research and I read as much as I can. That's why I wanted to write books. Um, you know, I learned as much as I could about addiction, about alcoholism, about 
pornography and sex addiction. So when I was standing before the judge, I was the healthiest version of myself that I ever had been. And, you know, and I told her, you know, you are going to be putting, I know you have to give me some kind of sentence, but you're putting the healthiest version of myself into a jail situation. Uh, and I think that going through the rehabs and all the therapy helped get a lesser sentence for sure. But um, that's, that's what ultimately saved my life and having to deal and learn about, you know, how the bipolar played into it, learning about how the trauma played into it and how, you know, the abuse that from the babysitter that I had when I was four or five years ago, you know, giving up all my power, giving up, you know, and just trying to survive day to day. My mantra in life became survive day to day. Say what you have to, whether it was in business or my personal relationships, you know, I learned at five years old, say what you have to do, do what you have to do to, to survive till tomorrow. And while that may work for a five-year-old kid who's maladjusted, it doesn't work for a 35-year-old man who's maladjusted. Mm-hmm. And, and it caught up with me. And uh, it's, uh, it, it was... It was hard as hell, you know, it, especially in the early goings, having to look at relationships with my with my kids, with my parents, uh, looking at the mistakes that I made in life, looking at how other people may have slighted me or, or you know, being honest with it. You know, I, I always I always looked at this, you know, babysitter as the devil and my parents were like angels who saved me from them. Well, but my parents weren't angels. They were humans. They made mistakes. And I had to go back and look at, you know, resentments I had against them from being a young kid and let those go. And, you know, it was, it was so hard early on. And that first year or two of recovery is difficult, but you get to the point where I am now where I still have to work at it and it still has to be, uh, you know, not necessarily top of mind, but it has to be present. And I have to remember that I'm constantly, you know, fighting this battle. Um, but it does get better. So anybody out there, I don't want to scare anybody from going in and getting into recovery. It, it is hard. It is difficult. That's why a lot of people take more than one try to get it right. Uh, but it's so worth it on the other end. When you get past those difficult years of recovery and you get to the place that I am now, uh, it's worth it. It's so, so worth it. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you've been, um, you dealt with bipolar for um, a large period of your life as well. How do you feel that the bipolar kind of fed into or was was the bipolar a contributing factor or what was the interplay between the... Uh, I tended to run far more manic than anything else. And I romanticized... I didn't get put... I, I, I probably was bipolar back to when I started becoming an addict. Um, I can recognize my teen years and my early 20s as just full of manic behavior. I mean, classic uh, narcissistic uh, illusions of grandeur kind of, uh, kind of manic behavior. When I was finally put on medicine in my early 20s, uh, it leveled it off. And I know part of what I did was to romanticize the mania in all of those preceding years when I was on the pills. Uh, I didn't remember, you know, walking around being exhausted because I couldn't sleep. I didn't remember all the people that I screwed over by lying to them or, or letting my ego get in the way of things. I remembered being creative. I remembered being energetic. Uh, and when I was when I was finally faced with my company falling apart, when I was faced with uh, trying to save 
save this company because I didn't know what would happen to my life. My magazine was, I was, I reached a point in 2000, late 2012, early 2013, where the revenues uh, were not equaling the expenses. And I'm not a very good business person. I'm a good writer. I'm not a good business person. And I didn't know what to do. And somehow I told myself that the thing to do was pull myself off my bipolar meds. And I can trace it back to pulling myself off my bipolar meds, thinking I'll tap into the manic side. I'll tap into that creativity. I'll be up a couple extra hours a night. My brain will be thinking in different ways. I'll figure out a way to save this company. I'll figure out a way to make things better at home. I'll figure out a way to make my life better because these pills are not going to be like a restrictor plate on me. I'm going to really tap into that manic side because it wasn't all bad. A lot of it was actually good. Uh, I'm going to use that to save my company. And what happened was within two or three weeks of those meds being out of my system, the alcoholism went off the chart and the porn addiction went off the chart. I never would have made the, tra the transfer over to chat rooms. I don't think if I hadn't pulled myself off of that you know, bipolar medication. And when I tell people that, you know, uh, I, I can't blame the addiction, I know that the addiction created a uh, mind space where I didn't fully understand uh, what I was doing or the impact of what I was doing. The reality was I did know that I had mental health issues and I did knowingly and willingly pull myself off of the meds and just allowed the chips to fall where they may. And they fell into a very horrible place where I you know, turned a girl who didn't deserve it into a victim. And that, you know, that's, that's the result of me deciding to pull myself off of my mental health medication. Uh, that's the road that that took me down. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't hide behind the addiction because I fully jumped into the pool, you know, running cannonball. Um, because I, I said that I, I didn't need the meds anymore. And, you know, that, that's a message as well for people of, uh, I know a lot of people with bipolar disorder want to pull themselves off their meds because we, we lull ourselves into this false sense of, oh, I'm okay now. I seem to be acting like the rest of them. I seem to be one of them again. And even, you know, years, I said I was, I was on these pills for 12 years before I pulled myself off of them. And I figured, you know, okay, well, it, it's, it's, it's not like a broken, leg you know it's more like diabetes you have to constantly monitor it you don't get fixed from bipolar disorder and and if you look at you know some of the some of the latest on it you know experts are starting to think it's a little more degenerative and a little bit more like a uh, uh, Alzheimer's or dementia um, and belongs more to that category of, of issues because of how it presents itself which I absolutely agree with uh, but pulling myself off of my bipolar medication, I believe, was what sent me from that space of being an ongoing addict. And I was an ongoing functional addict. I had the kids. I had the wife. I had the work. I can't say I was healthy. I can't say I was happy. But I was able to keep going. It was only when I took my mental health medication out of the recipe of my life that it sent me into the critical phase of addiction. That's when I went into those chat rooms. That's when I really went off the deep end and my whole world imploded. Mm, kind of feeding back into that need to self-soothe when the, when the medication is kind of doing its thing, right. and that, that desire, taking the edge off of that desire. Yeah, and, the, but then if you're, 
then finding yourself in a position whereby, I mean, I've got some personal experience with antidepressants. I took sertraline or Zoloft, I think is the, the brand name in the States. I took that for a while and then you take it and you feel good. He's like, oh, I feel fine now. I don't need to take it anymore. And then you start self-managing your medication. And then when invariably you come off, you end up in potentially more of a hole than you were in beforehand. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it did well. Getting off your meds makes you realize what an asshole you really are. Yeah, and and, uh, and it makes everybody else realize it too. And you know, it it you know, I talk about it in my first book. Uh, you know, when things were getting really bad at the very end, my wife was you know asking, saying to me, "Do I have to count your pills? I don't see you taking your pills anymore." And I was lying to her, telling her that I was taking them when I got to work in the morning. And that's where they were. I, I took them at work because I never forgot that way. Where when I was at home because of getting the kids ready for school or whatever was going on, I'd sometimes forget if they're on my desk at work, I'd never forget when there was nothing on my desk at work. I just didn't want her butting in and trying to interrupt what I thought was a genius plan to save my company. When in fact, you know, she was right there looking out for me the whole time. And I was just trying to gaslight her to get her away from me. Yeah, man. And then equally, the mental gymnastics that you go through to justify your behavior when you're in that situation as well. I've got personal experience of that again with the with the antidepressants. It's like, oh, no, I don't need to take them anymore. It's like, oh, like, I'm taking them when I get to work or I'm taking them like before you get up or something along those lines. And just the way that you end up rationalizing and justifying these things, which then become more convoluted as your brain starts switching back to the way that it was operating prior to you being on the medication which means the stories get more fantastical and more just ridiculous oh well i i remember i remember always hearing through life well if you don't lie you don't have to remember your lies and i remember thinking that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard because if you don't lie you don't get what you want and if you don't lie you don't control the situation and it's so much easier to just you know i i was clever i was cute i i could just you know, smile at people and shrug when i did something wrong and it's so much easier to say sorry than to ask permission and when you you know when i i was a bit of a charmer back then as well so i could charm my way through stuff and and shrug my my shoulders and you know do whatever I needed to do because I was good at manipulating people so you know I don't have to remember my lies of course I have to remember my lies because if I tell the truth that's giving up control and these pills gee maybe they're helping me they're they're also making me give up control so if I'm not on these pills I'm in full control and Maybe I'm supposed to be manic. Maybe I'm supposed to have this creativity. Maybe I was put on this earth for something special. Maybe, you know, I, 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 maybe I'm not like the rest of you. I remember one time talking to my therapist when I was first put on these or my psychiatrist when I was first put on these in my 20s. And I noticed the mania dropping and I said, why are you putting me on this stuff? What you need to do is give everybody else stuff to bring them up to where I already am naturally. That's what should be happening here. Everybody should feel this good because mania felt great. And in 12 years of not having it, I really romanticized the heck out of it. And I thought that that's what was going to save my business um, when, in fact, uh, pulling myself off of the pills was really that last nail in the coffin of heading into the critical phase of addiction and uh the complete implosion of life as i knew it do you think that perhaps subconsciously you knew that 
things were not going to improve um, in your current situation. So this, you tended towards self-destruction because you knew that ultimately that was going to get you the help that you needed. No, no. I, I've asked myself that and I, I love to, uh, you know, it, it would be so great in the biopic if that was true, but it's, I knew it's, that it's I needed true. help, but I knew that I needed to do something. No, something no, no. I, 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 I would have driven my car into a tree and been pulled out of it and made an excuse uh, that I wasn't drunk. You know, there, I, I, I can't imagine other than the law getting involved, I can't imagine how I could have been taken out of this situation um, the way that I was, because I, I needed to, I mean, uh, had, had I just gone to 12 step groups, um, I can't say that I wouldn't have been still drinking or still looking at porn. You know, I had the law on my shoulder and not, not just the law on my shoulder during my time between arrest and sentencing. And then for the six months in jail and for the three months of probation, you know, I, that, that's six years. I had the law on my shoulder during that time. Anytime they could give me a lie detector test, um, to find out what was going on. Anytime they could test my urine or my blood to find out if I had been drinking, uh, you know, they had the right to come and check my computers any time during that time. Uh, I think that having that big brother type of thing on my shoulder was a big part of the motivation to stop or, and, and maybe not as much during the probationary period because I'd already started into uh, recovery and I was already there. Once jail was over, it really wasn't that hard to stay off of, of, of alcohol and stay off of pornography um, because my life started to, you know, become back to the new normal. Uh, but having the law there was very, you know, useful to me because had my, had my family done an intervention and said, you're drinking too much, I would have laughed at them. Had I lost my job because the co-owners of the magazine with me had decided that I wasn't fit to run it, um, I would have said whatever and probably charmed my way into another good job and continued with the behaviors. Uh, the only thing that was going to cut me out at the knees was the law, and it did. And uh, when I came home, the, the day that I was arrested, uh, my wife picked me up. She bailed me out. Uh, we came back to my house, and there was already a TV news van in front of my house by the time we got home. And that night, uh, after we got our kids and we stopped and saw my parents and we went, finally went back to my house because there was no TV news fans there, a TV news fan showed up before the 10 o'clock news uh, to do a live remote from my front yard. And we had to get the kids and the pets all into my back bedroom. And we flipped on the TV and there's our front yard on live TV on the news. And we realized we forgot one of our dogs in the living room because there's my golden retriever barking in the window. And you can hear the dog barking in the window in real time and you can see it on TV barking. And you're just, I was just standing there going, this is so surreal. This is, this is, this is, this is something like you wouldn't believe this in a movie because it's so unlikely. Yet mm -hmm. I'm living this right now, watching my house on television as they talk about this. And it was such a gut punch. It was so public uh, that I, I needed something to come in and bulldoze my life. And thankfully, the very best parts of my life, you know, my family, the support they have for me, they love the love they have for me. They stood by my side because that doesn't always happen.
um, in these situations when someone is discovered to be a pornography addict, especially when you had the charges like I had against me um, involving underage pornography, you don't always get people standing by you. And I probably lost 90% of my friends. And I got a phone call that night from my co-owners who said, you're fired, uh, which was probably the best news that I'd heard that day. Uh, my, my life radically changed in the blink of an eye. And, you know, I recognized early in that day, oh my God, my life is going to be forever changed. But thank God my life is going to be forever changed. I recognize that as a opportunity. And the police, when they showed up, they sat here for an hour interviewing me. And, you know, I, I made them coffee and we had a good conversation and I explained how I did things. And, um, you know, I never tried to hide it. I never tried to deny what I did because they proved to me in the first five minutes they had me. And in, in driving me to the uh, sheriff's office where I, I was uh, uh, processed, the guy said to me, he said, you know, I got to tell you guys who handle this the way you're handling it, and you're handling it better than almost anybody I've ever seen, guys who handle it the way you handle it end up being okay in the end. And that's because I was just so tired. I, I was not looking for them to show up that day. If I could go back and change things, would I? Oh, yeah, I would. I'd change them a lot. I'd change it so they never showed up and I got better on my own. Um, I don't think I was looking for somebody to come and save me. Thank God somebody did uh, because I think that I had checked out to the point that I wasn't looking for help because I, I was so detached mm -hmm. from recognizing I needed it that, that no, no cry for help was going to come from me. Awesome. Well, I think that's the, uh, the perfect point for me to ask uh, my final question. If there is someone who is listening to this podcast at the moment and they, they resonate with your issues, um, maybe they're dealing with addiction, maybe they're dealing with depression associated with addiction, maybe it's anxiety, bipolar, something along those lines. What would be the, the one thing or perhaps more than one thing that you would recommend that they do that would help them kind of move forward with whatever that mental health issue is? Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody. I mean, obviously, the 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 smart money is on talking to somebody who is a mental health professional. Um, but one of the things that I've done is I've opened up a little, uh, I don't know whether I call it coaching or advisement or whatever service, where I talk to porn addicts. And I usually talk to them three or four times. But I look at it as the, my job is to prep them for getting help. Because it's so hard for them to just even picture the idea of walking into a therapist's office and saying, hi, I have a porn addiction. Um, or, or a couple walking in and saying, you know, there's, there's porn addiction here. Um, I, I will sit with guys. Like I said, I'm often the first person that a lot of people ever talk to. And when I start saying things like, you know, there is this phenomenon among uh, porn addicts where, you know, if you're in one of those long sessions of looking for pornography on, on the Internet, you're looking for that perfect piece of pornography to, you know, have your triumphant finish of that session for. And that's how you lose hours and hours. When you hear that guys, you know, are masturbating and looking at pornography six, eight hours. You know, I, I never did it that long, but I've met guys who have done it that long. And even me, who probably never went over two hours, 
It's looking for that perfect piece of pornography. It's chasing that high, chasing that high. That's really all that is. It's chasing that high. And when you describe this uh, act activity and you're open enough to describe this activity of chasing this high, which is, it's kind of shameful when you think about, you know, what you're chasing and people don't want to admit that you're, you know, just trying to get the perfect orgasm um, because that's the only thing that's going to make you feel better that day. Uh, when you admit that to them, they feel a connection. Oh, you get me. You understand me. And once I can make a connection with somebody who is an addict, uh, then I can tell them, well, you know what? It was it was great talking to addicts in rehab. That was hugely important to me. I had to meet people who were like me and understand there were people who were like me out there because I'd, I'd never met these people before. But the next step was getting the help from the professionals who were trained, who knew what they were doing, who had dealt with many people like me in the past. So, you know, my, my, my urgent wish is for people to talk to somebody. Even if you don't think you're going to go to a therapy for a long time, go sit with a therapist, tell them you've got this issue. What are your, what are your options about getting better? Um, you know, there are 12 steps. There are online, you know, forums there. You can do a lot of research. You can go to different kinds of support groups. There is inpatient, uh, rehab. There are a lot of different ways to go get help. You need to talk to somebody and you need to go get help. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. And it's a hugely brave step to go get help. Even if it's just stick a toe in the water and, and read about a 12-step group or go to the Wikipedia page about what you think you're addicted to, that's still a first step. And you just have to take that little first step. And that next step is talking to somebody, whether it be professional or somebody who's been through what you've been through, recognize you're not alone, and plot a course for getting better. That's absolutely, absolutely essential. Awesome. Perfect. I think that is, um, yeah, some of the most profound advice I've heard um, in regard to getting help with anything. Just, yeah, go, go and get some help. Thank yeah. you very much indeed, Joshua. This has been fantastic, very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with both myself and my listeners. And I, you know, I appreciate you giving me the time, Ben, because there are still so many people who feel like if the word pornography comes out of your mouth, you're somehow endorsing it. And you know that that's just not the case. We need to learn to talk about this. And anybody out there who needs help and you know doesn't know where to turn, I can be here for you. Come, you know, visit my site. It's recoveringpornaddict.com. I have lots of resources for you where you can learn about the addiction. You can read articles that I write a couple times a week. Um, you know, we have to start tackling this and, uh, you know, hopefully I can help somehow. Awesome. I will make sure that that website link is in the, the show notes for anyone who is interested. So thank you very much uh, for doing this and everyone, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. That was rolling forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.